talk about the worst match ever to win match of the year. And this one was in PWI, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, but it also was one of the best booked matches of all time. An absolutely fantastic angle, though a terrible match. And this is part brought on by the death of Bobby the Brain Heenan, arguably the greatest manager who ever lived. I was at a show probably 2005, might have been a little earlier. The date's not entirely right, I don't think. It was before I was doing the drink tank, so that would mean like... In 2004, but I also remember I was with a specific girlfriend, which would make it after 2006, so I don't know. But there were two guys, two indie dudes, arguing. And one was saying that Paul Heyman was the best manager of all time, and was arguing that his run with the Dangerous Alliance in WCW was the single greatest thing that was in wrestling in the 90s. The other was arguing that Jim Cornette was the greatest manager ever, pointing out the entire thing with the Midnight Express, taking, uh, in essence, four different guys who had no talent and turning them into big deals. He was completely wrong on the no talent part of that, by the way. And they were getting pretty heated. It was gone on for about 10 minutes. And then a guy who I'm fairly certain was Joey Ryan walks over and says, neither of them were half as good as Bobby Heenan, and walks off. And the two dudes just shut up. That is what Bobby Heenan was. He was the best manager ever. His run with Nick Bockwinkle in the 70s and into the 80s in the AWA was phenomenal. I think he shows up in The Wrestler, even, and is always great. Uh, his legendary run in the WWF as the manager of everyone from Ravishing Rick Rude to King Kong Bundy. Usually it was like you had Lou Albano, the Grand Wizard, and Freddie Blassie leading the heel challengers to Bruno San Martino and later uh, Bob Backlund even. You had Bobby Heenan for the most part being the manager of whoever was going to be challenging to Hulk Hogan during his biggest run. And they had both come over from the AWA about the same time. It was an amazing, amazing thing. He managed King Kong Bundy going into WrestleMania 2. And he managed Andre going into WrestleMania 3. And then of course famously he managed Ric Flair in his run of, uh, in his run in the WWF. Of course, coming up with, be fair to Flair! Uh, that's a shout out to David Brott. Uh, you're a good guy. Losing him is losing one of the last sort of big name managers of the 1980s. We've lost Lou Albano already, who was possibly the biggest crossover in, in the mainstream because of his association with uh, Cindy Lauper and, of course, his turn on the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. We still have Jimmy Hart, and yes, we still have Corny and Polly. We still have Diamond Dallas Page. A lot of people forget that he was actually a great manager in the AWA for Bad Company. But we no longer have Bobby the Brain Heenan, who's also an amazing commentator, him on primetime with Gorilla Monsoon and on the pay-per-views. A phenomenal team. They played so well off each other. And, you know, probably the biggest tear-inducing moment during Heenan's Hall of Fame acceptance beats Heenan, who had had uh, jaw cancer and was having trouble speaking, just saying, you know, it would make this even better as if Gorilla were here. That that was huge. That waterworks for me, no question. By 1988, Heenan wasn't managing nearly as much. So what, and the idea at that time was to turn the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, into the next big thing. And he already pretty much was. He had those great interviews. Uh, his matches at that point weren't great, largely because he wasn't given much time to have great matches, but still... At that point, WWF was not about great matches, and it 
you know, every now and then you would get that Steamboat Savage. Or a lot of the tag team matches, actually, like uh, Strike Force versus the Islanders. Some, had some great matches. But what we had here was Ted DiBiase and Virgil hired Andre the Giant to take on Hulk Hogan, get his, the belt off of him, and then give it to DiBiase. And this was the main event. It might not even have been the main event. It may have been the opener. I don't exactly remember the timeline for this show, but it was certainly what everyone tuned in to the main event on primetime on NBC from Market Square Arena in Indianapolis. I remember watching this vividly, and the match was wretched. Even back then, I knew it was bad. Andre could hardly move. And Hogan has this great thing. I don't know if I'd say it's a great thing, but it is a thing, where he does not only as little as necessary, but he only does the stuff that he knows will get a reaction. And some people see this as a good thing, and I understand that point. If you're out there doing... You know, Kenny Omega versus Okada, and the audience isn't reacting to it. Why the hell do it? Why put yourself through that? But on the other hand, there is something to be said for working above your reaction. And here, literally, Hogan does most of the work. He had that, there was a ridiculous bear hug spot where it literally just looks like Andre is leaning on him to try and stand up. And Hogan sells the hell out of it. It's actually kind of a neat, neat moment. But in the end, what I think was Andre's finisher at the time might not have been, though. Uh, was this sort of front face lock, hooks the arm, and then puts him over for a suplex. And usually it looked pretty bad. It wasn't great. Uh, I think AJ Styles has been using it recently, except for, you know, with much more athletic movement. And he hits that on Hogan, and it looks terrible. Literally, it kind of just looks like Hogan flung himself as best he could, and he wasn't exactly great at flinging himself, and Hogan... And Andre just kind of held on and then put him down. And Dave Hebner counts. One, two. Hogan gets the shoulder clearly up to the point where he was pretty much laying on his side, which also meant that Andre had to sort of be weirdly angled so that Hogan could do that. So it really more looks like Andre is on his hands and knees just sort of surrounding Hogan so that he can get that shoulder up. And of course, Hebner slaps the canvas for the third time. The place goes nuts. He slides out of the ring and Hogan's like, what, what just happened? What's going on? And McMahon and Heenan are having this wonderful exchange. How could he do that? How could he make the count? It was clearly a mistake. And it's just about three minutes, I think, from the time the canvas is slapped until Dave Hebner goes, grabs the title, walks around the ring, hands it to Andre. Gene Okerlund has come into the ring, I guess up onto the apron, and starts to do this interview with Andre. And Andre says he is surrendering the title to the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase. Crowd goes unhinged. The crowd was super hot for the entire thing. But now they're just the greatest booze and anger ever you hear from a crowd. And Hogan goes apoplectic, and the guys leave the ring... And then the second Hebner comes in, Earl Hebner. And those of us who watched all wrestling at that point, and I was watching everything I could get my hands on, knew that there was a ref who mostly worked for Crockett, who was Dave Hebner's identical twin. And they sort of face off, and they start jawing. And the crowd's nuts here. The crowd's absolutely crazy. It's great. It really is. And eventually one of the Hebners punches the other and then kicks him out of the ring. Honestly... Hebner's punch looked better than most of Hogan's punches in this match. And I think it was Earl Hebner who was down. Uh, took the kick like a pro and rolled out of the ring. 
And then Hogan grabs who I think is Dave Hebner. I'm, I'm honestly not a hundred percent sure who's who in this one. Uh, my grandmother was an identical twin and I could never tell the difference between them. I have trouble with identical twins. Thank God my kids are just fraternal, but Hogan picks up. Hebner over his head and tosses him out onto Virgil Andre DiBiase. Although it kind of looks like uh, they didn't catch him all the way and he sort of flew over, but still very impressive. This brings up a point that I think is really important to sort of talk about in the history of professional wrestling. It is seldom the best workers who get the most over with the crowd. Occasionally it happens. Ric Flair is the best example I can think of. Uh, Luthez, too, used to get amazing reactions. But Ric Flair's reactions typically were not what Hulk Hogan would get. Or for that matter, Dusty Rhodes. And maybe that's a difference between heel and face, of course, but Luthez didn't get the reactions that a lot of guys at that point did, especially Buddy Rogers. If you've ever watched an old Buddy Rogers match, the crowd is nuts. And maybe it's just the fact that the few that survived were obviously... Roger's most important matches, and the crowd going nuts was just a, a given for those scenarios, and that's sort of why they were preserved. But if you watch a Fez and a, a Rogers match, Rogers was obviously the one who connected better with the crowd. This match was terrible, but what this match did have was the crowd. This was either the second or the third time Hogan and Andre had met in their big run. I think it was the second. I think the third was at WrestleMania 4, and I think the fourth was at Summerfest in the cage. I could be wrong about that, but this was not a well-seen match yet. Their run in the earlier in the 80s was not at the top of the card and sort of gets glossed over. So this match had heat for its rarity at that point. And largely because the reason why those earlier matches are sort of forgotten is that there had been this huge influx of fans, which started with WrestleMania 1, 2, and especially 3. The whole Hulkamania thing, this entire battle, actually I really think that the battle between Crockett and Titan, led to an increase in interest overall in pro wrestling. And there were tons of kids like me who would just watch any wrestling we could find. And because of cable, there was wrestling all the time. And it became an obsession. So we could watch all of this that's going on. So this match had an amazing level of heat, and you can't watch it today without feeling that level. We don't get that sort of heat for the most part now. At least not in the U.S. Not nearly as much. I can think of matches like the four-way at SummerSlam this year. Uh, NXT matches sometimes get that level. Uh, I think that the best modernish example is CM Punk versus John Cena. The crowd was unhinged. It was the best crowd experience I can think of. Here they told, in the match, they told a very simple story. It's after the match where they tell the big story, where they re- the Hebner reveal, brilliantly done, perfect. The pass between Andre and the Million Dollar Man, great. The Million Dollar Man here is brilliant. And if he had transitioned to just managing instead of managing and wrestling, he would have been, would have been the best thing possible. He could have rivaled Heenan. This was... As a presentation, this was an A-plus presentation of an F match. And that's a sign of people who understand how to book. And this is the other thing I want to talk about. 1980s wrestling was all about the presentation, and there was no one who could present wrestling better than the WWF at that point. Everyone talks about the television presentation that World Class Championship Wrestling run by the Von Erichs was doing at that point. 
it was nothing compared to the WWE. Even the graphics were so much better for McMahon. Flip side, though, they booked these cartoon storylines that often just felt tacked on, but they were simple to understand for younger audiences like me at that point. I was only like 13, 14. They looked at pretty simplistic stories, and they went through, and it was great. I really think that this was one of those moments when booking became the most important thing. WWF didn't have a mess load of great talent at this point, as far as in-ring work, at least at the top of the card. Yeah, they had DiBiase, who was great. They had Savage, who, if he decided to go, could go. They had, I don't think Mr. Perfect had come in yet, but he would change everything. He would bring great work. They had the tag teams, uh, Strike Force, the Islanders, uh, the Heart Foundation. I want to say at that point they hadn't gotten Tully and Arn yet, but they were close. But you had these sort of teams, but they weren't really necessarily at the top of the card. What a lot of the guys who were working there had to rely on was the booking and selling the storyline. Jake Roberts was never a great worker, but the man could interview and he could sell an angle better than anyone. Rick Rude, a decent worker, actually, uh, who was, I think he was sort of early in his run at this point. He could work a match if he had to, but so often... He was playing within this storyline and did a great job of it. At this point, you still had Coco Beware getting a lot of attention. The guy, at least as far as I see, never had a decent match. I, I take that back. He did have some decent tag matches when he was teaming with Owen Hart. But his whole presentation was so good that it didn't matter. WWF at that point was about presentation and storyline. And that has come down to us today with the added addition of the realization that good wrestling can actually draw another crowd. This match is awful, but I, I 100% recommend you see it. And sort of look at it through the three points. What does this match say about late 80s WWF wrestling? What does this match say about what connected with crowds at that point? And what does this match say about the importance of titles? Because the answer to all three of those questions determines the direction that wrestling went over the next decade, and even through to today. We're coming up on the 30th anniversary of this match. I know, time flies. Uh, in February of this year, or maybe it's May, I can never remember. It'll be 30 years since this moment, and it was the most watched wrestling match ever at that point, I think. What does it mean when a terrible match that we all knew was going to be terrible because the WrestleMania match had been terrible? Memorable, but terrible. What does it mean when that is what draws the money. And the answer to that, I just don't know. So stay tuned for more Match of the Year podcasts. I'm Chris Garcia. Thanks for coming. I love you. I love you.